Good morning, everyone. Um, my name's Chris. Welcome. If this is your first time here with us at New Life Church, if you have a Bible, it'll be really useful to be able to follow on what we're doing today. If you've got an app, you can even download the notes if they're a bit hard to see. So if you've got that version app, you can find the event. You can download these as well. We're going to be talking about Elijah, and it's the last in our series on Elijah. Now, as you get your Bibles ready, I just want to say something about which Bible you might be reading. Because each time we've had someone preach, they've used a different version. First, we had Andy Malcolm, who used the NIV. And the NIV is probably the most popular Bible of the last 30 years or so. And you'll see it sits around here, which means the translators have taken each thought or idea, they've looked at the original language, they've turned it into a new thought. Last week, so where is Brian? Brian, I think it was a new King James. He's not here because it had the word spotted in it. And you'll see the King James, hundreds of years old. This was slightly different because it would take each word from the original language and translate the word. So it sounds beautiful and it's got a similar sort of word order to the way they'd have originally been written. I'm using the ESV. Whoops. Or not. There we go. There we go. So this version here, which is similar to the King James in some ways, is a modern translation of word for word. And you'll see as we go through why I chose to use that today. Don't worry if your preferred version isn't on there. Don't feel any guilt. Oh, no, I love the message. I love the paraphrase. I love the modern interpretation. The best advice is using a range of versions of the Bible is really good. It's a really good way of having the Bible and God's word expressed to you in new ways. There might be one that you find you're really familiar with. The version of the Bible you grew up with. The version of the Bible you read in your devotions. So having a preferred version, brilliant. Reading a range of Bibles, brilliant. So if you've got an app, you might want to tune in to the ESV. So what I read matches what you've got in front of you. But that's just a way of understanding how real and alive God's word is. So although I'm preaching to you from the Bible, for hundreds of years people have been studying this, understanding what the message is, and making it real and relevant to their lives today. And this is just part of that journey. So we're going to look at five questions. Who? Who was Elijah? What was going on? Where did this all happen? When did it happen? And why did someone bother to write this story down? Why did somebody, hundreds of years ago, decide this was a story worth telling? So, when is it? When is all this stuff happening? I don't know which of the parts of the Bible you're really familiar with, but you've probably heard the story of creation. In the beginning, God. The story of Adam and Eve. Noah and a flood. A guy called Moses who led the people out of Egypt. Then you get to all these stories of kings. Saul, David, Solomon. And then what happens next is, this country called Israel splits in two. And we're about this point in the story. We're hearing about Israel, the Israelites, after they've divided from some people in the south, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. What happens next in the story is that Judah gets taken to Babylon. So they get taken a couple of times. They come back two or three times, depending who you are. And Israel ends up being exiled and not returning in that part of God's story for them. You then get on to the little gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament where Jesus is born, the Holy Spirit comes, and we look forward to a new creation. So just to help you place where we are, Elijah and Ahab is around about 850 years before Christ. But what's interesting as well is the story was written about 300 years later around here. 
So 300 years after this happened, someone decided to write the stories of the kings. They wrote some books called Kings. There's a book called Chronicles that tell the story. So when we come to this part of the Bible, it's worth thinking, why did someone want to tell that story? Why did they want to communicate that? And the thing that's interesting is they were writing it for the people of Judah, the people of Israel, who'd been taken from their homeland. So the purpose of kings is to remind them that God is real. There's a consequence as well for not listening to God. So the reason kings was written, the reason that Elijah was recorded as a story, was to tell the people of Judah then that God was real, God was true, even when they forgot about him. So the story happens about here, 850 BC. It was written about 300 years later. Where did it happen? You'll probably recognize this as the Mediterranean. You'll see Israel. So you will see the area here, the northern part where 10 of the tribes were based and two of the tribes here. And we're looking at this mount here, Mount Carmel, about 500 meters high. Two weeks ago, Ted Jack, when he spoke, talked about being on that mountain. You can go there today and the mist from the sea descending and not being able to see very far in front of you. You can visit that place. This mountain where this story happened is there. This guy, Elijah, came from this sort of area here, Tisbe. It was a bit wild, a bit remote, so a bit like coming from Norfolk, I guess, except it was probably a, a, a bit more rugged than you maybe sometimes expect. But he'd appeared to give the people of Israel a message from God. So that's the where. So kings, loads and loads of kings. The book is called Kings. So you've probably heard of Saul and David and Solomon. The people of Israel decided that God wasn't necessarily enough. They had God. They had prophets that gave them messages from God. They had judges that helped them decide things. But they said, give us a king just like all the other countries. They wanted, although they were God's people, to be like the countries around them. So the colours tell you whether generally he wasn't a good king, whether generally he was a really good king, or someone like Solomon that started off quite good and got worse as it went on. So you can see for the two, so Judah and Israel, you can see the kings they had over that period of time. So these people had had kings. They were used to following kings for all this time. We get in Israel to Ahab about halfway through here. So Ahab was worse than all the kings before him. So it tells us that in the Bible. Ahab had a reputation for being worse than all of these kings, being worse than Saul. Generally, the phrase in the Bible says, did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. So Ahab was bad news. Ahab was bad news for the people of Israel. And you can see that when the story comes to the end here, so you end up with kings against kings within tribes against tribes. You see sometimes there's good news. People like Hezekiah. Hezekiah remembered the word of the Lord and he taught it to the people. But generally, especially for Israel, kings were bad news. So last little bit of context for you, because last time I spoke was about Proverbs. I remember thinking, oh gosh, poetry, poetry with all this figurative language, something you can't necessarily understand directly. Um, Proverbs, parables. So these are the kind of the, the Psalms and wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, Job. No one's really quite sure where that's set. Lamentations. You get all these prophets and these prophets have got their prophecies recorded. You'll see Elijah doesn't have a book. There's not a book of Elijah. The things Elijah does and says are recorded in Kings. 
So we've got these books of the law. So in the history, we've got these books of history. And we've got chronicles. So you can read about these things sometimes in a couple of different places. So we're here. The kingdom divides into north and south. 1 Kings 18. So time to launch your Bible, I think, in a moment. So King Ahab. You can read this in 1 Kings 16.30. He had a wife, Jezebel. Um, She came from outside of Israel. That was something God had said not to do. So he told people not to marry people from different countries. He wanted to keep his story with his people and not have them influenced by other people. If you're married, you've probably been influenced by your spouse. So there's probably stories you can tell about things you'd have never dreamed of doing, they've encouraged you to do, mistakes you would have made if they hadn't stopped you. But Ahab was influenced a lot by his wife Jezebel. He did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. The prophets of Baal. I always picture a really bad 80s rock band. So Ahab and the prophets of Baal. You kind of think they go together. They've got long hair. They make lots of noise. And Baal was a false god. He wasn't real. But he was renowned for bringing fertility, helping the crops grow, and the god of storms. He was meant to be the best at bringing on the rain. There was also prophets of Asherah. And she was a female goddess. She was reputedly married to the god. And she was the goddess who walks on the sea. So there they are, Mount Carmel, right on the coast. And these prophets are praying to the god of storms and the goddess that walks on the sea. And they still aren't having any rain. For years, it's been dry in this country because Elijah said, in the will of God, there won't be any rain. So these gods already had pretty a bad reputation. These false gods weren't delivering on what they said they would. So those are the, the bad side of the characters. On the other side, there's Elijah. And Elijah feels like he's alone. Elijah feels like he is the only one following God. His name means, so Elijah, my God, is Yahweh. That's what his name was. His name meant to them, my God is Yahweh. So Yahweh was the name the Israelites had for their God. So in his name, he was going around saying, my God is Yahweh, my God is Yahweh. Wherever he was, people were hearing that message. And we hear this every week. I love the fact that four times now you've been told that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently. He prayed. He was like us. Whoever you are today, this is a story of a man just like you are. And towards the end of this message, there'll be a chance to respond. There might be things you just want to thank God for and say, thank you, God, that you're the same God now as you were thousands of years ago. It might be your prayer wants to be, help me be more like Elijah. There's things about Elijah that I think God wants you to hear today. So Elijah, on his own, except he had God with him. So he might have felt like he was one man, but with God on his side, he wasn't outnumbered. With God on his side, he, like Letty, Letty full of life and joy, she wasn't scared. Letty's not scared of anything, I think. That's why she breaks her arm so many times. But um, Letty was brave, and she can be brave because she knows God is on her side. So Yahweh. The name of God, which just means I am. I am God. I am your God. I am the one that I am. So Yahweh and Elijah versus Ahab and the prophets of Baal. And in between, you've got Israelites. Israelites who make wrong decisions. They sometimes make good decisions. Which way should they go? We saw them here, didn't we? The children in the middle who watched the prophets of Baal, who watched Elijah. That could be us. Which way do we decide to turn?
So 1 Kings 18. I'm going to start reading from verse 17. So on the left you'll see the Bible. On the right will just be some messages I think God wants us to hear today. So 1 Kings 18 verse 17 says, When Ahab, the bad king, saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. And it's this argument here. Who is the troublemaker? Who is the troublemaker? Ahab calls Elijah a troublemaker. He's he's troubling Ahab. He's causing problems. He's reminding people about God. But Elijah says, no, Ahab, you are the trouble one. I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because they had abandoned the commandments of the Lord. So this word trouble in the Hebrew is called akar. And this is why often it can be really helpful when you're studying the Bible to look at the original words. Because this word akar reminds the people reading it at the time of Achan and a place called Achor. Achar means trouble. And I guess you're familiar with trouble. You might have come to church because you're feeling troubled today. Church is being a place of refuge. You might have that sense of trouble or turmoil within you. There's a story in Joshua 7 about a place called Jericho. And Jericho was a big city the Israelites came across that was in their way. It was in between their story of the Exodus and coming to the Promised Land. And they had it knocked down. God knocked it down. They walked round it and round it and blew trumpets and the walls came down. But God said to them, don't take anything from that city for yourself. Don't take any of the gold, any of the silver, any of the fine clothes. But there was one person, Achan, who did. Achan abandoned the commandments of the Lord. Israel had been doing this for a long time. So this idea of Achan, this word trouble, there was someone who personified that, who showed the Israelites what trouble meant. If you don't do what God says, you're faced with trouble. And then this valley of Achor is where they took Achan to kill him. Because of his sin, he was taken by the Israelites and he was killed. Not listening to God leads to trouble. Not listening to God leads to trouble. There's other sorts of trouble that you might face um, that develops perseverance. Trouble doesn't always mean you're not following God. But not following God always leads to trouble. So it might be that some of the troubles that we face or people do to face because they're not following the commands of the Lord. This is why understanding the Bible is really important. What does God say to me? Am I doing what God says to me? And it was just this phrase here. Have you abandoned the commandments of the Lord? The reason the Israelites are in trouble, no rain, lots of enemies, lots of strife, lots of bad kings, is because they'd forgotten or chosen not to follow the commands of the Lord. So when this person writes kings, they're reminding the people in Babylon, follow what God says. Remember, remember the story of your ancestors. Helps make sense of exile. Being taken out of your promised land was because the Israelites hadn't followed God's commands. If they had followed God's commands, things may have turned out differently. But I think we know, and we don't judge them, we know how hard it can be to do the right thing. We know that when we've just got good intentions, we don't have enough willpower to turn our intentions into good actions. It's tough. It's really tough to always do the right thing. So the Israelites, I think, are a lot like us. We know we want to follow God's word, but we can't do it on our own. So there was trouble. 
There was trouble afoot. And the next verse says this. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. This is big entertainment. This is like the World Cup. This is people coming from all over the place. There's very little entertainment. But if the king says, come, you expect there'll be food, there'll be excitement, there'll be a festival. Thousands of people come to Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, and he said to the people of Israel, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. So this is the picture of people having a choice and limping between the two. You know what it's like when you've hurt your ankle or your leg and you limp. It's hard to move freely. The Israelites were torn between Baal and God. They were limping between the two. Sometimes they'd go one way, sometimes the other. They were faced with a choice. And that choice is a choice that we face as well. Which way will you go when you come to that difficult decision? Do you follow God? Do you follow the gods of the world around you? So they had this idea of limping. The word for limping is Pasach, which is similar to Passover. It's this idea of passing over things, having a wobbly gait. So limping between is a word or passing over things that comes up again and again in the Old Testament. But this is a passage where you hear it twice. Limping. You'll see the word limping in a moment. So how is your limp? How is your gait? Are you clear whether you're following God? Are you torn between following God or following Baal? Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. They like this idea of a competition. They like the idea of seeing, which God should I follow? So is Baal going to demonstrate that yes, he's real? Are we going to be reminded that Yahweh is the real God? And this lovely phrase here, if you know anyone called Eliana, Eliana is a beautiful sounding name. It means God hears or God answers. This word El for God. Elohim, Anna. Anna, this idea of being heard and answered. God is a God who answers. God is a God who answers. So God now today is a God that hears your prayers. He hears our worship. He hears the pleas from our hearts. He hears almost when we curse and we say, oh God, why are you doing that? He hears when people are hurting. He hears when they're praising and he answers. And this is a story of God answering prayer. It's that simple. Elijah, a man like us, prays and God answers. And again, today, is there an answer that you want? God hasn't changed. If you pray to God, he will hear you, he will answer. What is it you want to say to him? So Elohim, Anna, a God that hears, a God that answers. If I was Elijah, I think I'd still feel really nervous. I know that. I know that God answers. I've had ravens feed me. So I've seen people healed from the dead. I've had everlasting flour and oil. But will God do this? Will God choose to wait a little bit longer? Will God do it today? What does God want to teach me? It's hard to wait for those answers. But we can trust in God and know that he does answer us. A bit more limping. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one ball and prepare it first, for you are many. 
because they'll be able to prepare it quicker. It takes you quite a long time to prepare a bull. So he's very gentlemanly. He lets them go first. They prepare their bull. They put it on the altar. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. So you can see them getting tired. So you can see them being frail. Um, They used to almost cut themselves. They would call out to God. They would do everything they could to try to persuade their God, who doesn't exist, to do something. So they looked probably very foolish. They were hurting themselves. They were damaging themselves. If you, or if you know people in your life who follow after gods of the world, it does cause you to limp. If you're seeking after material goodness or trying to do it yourself, you end up limping. So there is a God who gives you strength. There is a God who gives you wings like eagles. It says this in Isaiah. He helps you. But there's also false gods out there that cause you to limp. And they won't answer you. And at noon, Elijah mocked them. I loved um, Anna's translation of this. So cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, that was daydreaming, the bitch missed that, or he is relieving himself. So is your God on the toilet? That's literally what that meant. There's a picture of God being too busy to answer because he's relieving himself. Or is he on a holiday, on a journey? Or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. So God's not like that. The reason Elijah could make a joke of that is because he knew his God wasn't like that. He knew his God was real and alive. Our God is always focused on what's happening, even the sparrows. So even you, every part of your life is something God gives attention to. He doesn't need to take a break to go to the toilet. He doesn't go on holiday. So he's not like Aslan in C.S. Lewis. You know how they wait for Aslan because he's away and there's only those commitments where Aslan comes back? Our God is always with us. God's Holy Spirit is always with us, in us. God is before us. God is behind us. He doesn't sleep. You don't have to wake God up. So your prayers don't have to be so loud that God hears them. Sometimes they need to be persistent and they need to be that word fervent. They need to be something you believe and God will teach us things through not answering straight away. But you don't have to shout loudly for God to hear you. They they cried aloud, this is the prophet of Baals, they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. That word oblation just means a sort of offering. So typically the Israelites would offer in the morning and offer in the evening. So that tells us it's evening time. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. I just love that idea of raving on, raving on. But interest, this word is used about prophecy all through the Bible. Prophecy. Sometimes you can hear prophecy and actually it's not of God. It's just people raving on. There's almost a warning there. It's the same word used when it is God speaking and when it's not God speaking. So there's just a word of caution. This word nawa is sometimes used about God's prophets. It's sometimes used about other prophets. This idea of just talking gibberish. So, But sometimes in that, that's God speaking through his prophets. Sometimes it's not. Here's a picture. 1920, this picture was painted. So this is from the Moody Bible Institute. If you're lucky, you might have an old picture Bible at home that's got these photos in, <coughs> pictures in. You can get them all for free online. And it's just incredible to think that 100 years ago, this is how people were telling the story of Elijah through books. 
Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain 12 buckets of water, so or two seers of seed. 12, there was a message there for the Israelites. So Israel was only 10 tribes, Judah was two. Even doing that, he was reminding them, you should be one people. He was reminding them they'd abandoned what God had said. They were a people divided. So even by taking 12 stones, the people watching, the people reading it 300 years ago, would know that was a reminder about God having one people. So Elijah builds the altar. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. They did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. Water was precious at that point. There'd been a drought. The rains weren't coming. They're on top of a mountain. There wasn't much water around. And he's got them to do it again and again and again. You imagine they're laughing, some might be a bit annoyed, why more water, why more water? But he was making the point that God is powerful. God is powerful. And this is the moment, are they waiting for God to do something? (laughs) How long was that moment? How do you feel being like Elijah? That might be you at work, that might be you and your family. You're waiting for God to answer your prayer. How does it feel in that moment? Elijah doesn't know what's going to happen. Anna spoiled the end. (laughs) You know what's going to happen. You might have known the story before you came today. God is going to answer. But Elijah didn't know that. So he knew God was real. He'd seen miracles. He'd heard about God. But will God answer now? How does it feel to be in that moment? There's a little quote here from someone called Leonard Ravenhill. So um, he's passed away now, but he went to a college called Cliff College in Derbyshire, which is still a Methodist college you can go to. Um, He was a man of prayer. He was a man of encouragement to the church. And he said this about Elijah. This was about now. So this was in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. Where is the God of Elijah? He's where he's always been, waiting for Elijah to call on him. That's why I said the title is maybe not quite it. God turns up. <laughs> God's there. God's there anyway. God has been there the whole time. God hasn't left his people, but they're waiting for Elijah to call on him. God's there for you now. God's not distant. God's waiting for you to call on him now. And it might be today's a day you choose to call on him. God has been waiting for you to say, God, where are you? Come to me. Teach me. God is where he's always been waiting for Elijah to call on him. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, so that's evening, that's twilight, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, who was another of their ancestors, and Israel, that's the 12 tribes, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me. O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, 
and that you have turned their hearts back. And this is the reason for the story. This is why the story's put in. This is why God chose to do this. It's for these reasons. Let it be known that you are God. And that's our prayer this morning, that today you'll be reminded that God is God. And that I have done these things at your word. Elijah was just someone like us, but the difference was he did what God said. He was different to the Israelites because when God said something, he went. He went this way, he went that way, he went to this brook, he went to this valley, he went to this house. The only difference was he did what God said. So you might find it hard when I say you're like Elijah. Yes, you have the same passions, the same heart, but is the difference that you're not following what God said? Elijah was somebody who did things at God's word. And the reason was, answer me, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord our God, that you have turned their hearts back. And this is that idea of repentance. Elijah has prayed, you are God. I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, answer me. He says it twice. Maybe he's a bit nervous. So answer me, answer me. That these people may know that you turn hearts. And I love this fact. I don't turn hearts. Our worship team don't turn hearts. So you can't turn hearts of people in your life or your family. Only God can do that. Those of you that work for mission organizations, you work so hard and you bless so many people, but you don't turn hearts. So only God turns hearts. Only God can do that. So if you've been praying and praying for people that are dear to you, for them to turn their hearts, it's only God that can do that. It's not just down to you. It's tough being a parent, and I suppose I worry about my children turning away from God. I worry about them choosing not to follow him. But that's God's responsibility. Only God can turn hearts. It's a spiritual work. Yes, it's important we pray for them. Yes, it's important we show them who God is. We talk to them and read the word. But it's God that turns hearts. There shouldn't be any guilt for us not having done enough to tell people or show them. It's God's work. Elijah's not trying to convince the people of Israel. All he's doing is asking God to do it. He's just asking God to turn hearts. So if you need a new name for God, God is a heart turner. That's what he does. That's who he is. That's why he sent Jesus to turn hearts. He's a God that hears and answers. He turns hearts. Then... Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Everything has gone. Everything has gone. There used to be lots of rules about how the Israelites had to treat the ashes. They'd have to pick up the ashes, take them out of the camp, go put them somewhere. They'd have to put some more things on, feed it with wood. This wasn't a normal offering. This was incredible. This was everything being consumed. And that is a picture of fire. And for us, there is a fire. God is a God of fire. There is a fire that will consume everything. And the end of the story, if you remember one of those timelines when we get to a new creation down here, there is a time when fire will be part of God's final judgment for the decisions we've made. Fire comes if we haven't been obedient to God in following his son and accepting Jesus as our saviour. There is a fire, a fire like this that will consume everything. And when the people saw it, They fell on their faces and said. So those Israelites that were limping between two gods, those Israelites have been reminded and they've turned to God. They fall on their faces and say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. It seems quite simple. All God had to do was show himself. 
And again, as we pray, God, we want you to show yourself to these people who are limping between you and other gods. When the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And the last bit, the last bit that's I'm going to show you is this. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. They seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. It's really hard when you come to preach these passages because there's bits that just sound so different the way we treat people nowadays. So we're learning about peace and goodness and love and hope and joy. But all through the Old Testament, you see the fact that God is taking sin so seriously. Like that guy Achan, the sin of Achan, all he did was take a really nice looking cloak, um, some shekels of silver, some shekels of gold. He probably seemed quite normal and natural to do, but him and his family were killed because of it. God instructed Elijah to take these prophets of Baal, people that didn't be astray, and to have them killed. God is really serious about sin. God is so serious about sin that he actually had his son put to death because of it. Not because of Jesus' sin, but because of our sin. So again, this idea of Jesus being the price. All of these people in the Old Testament that died was God showing how serious he was about sin. He shows it most in Jesus. Jesus was killed because of sin so that we don't have to kill prophets of Baal anymore. So one of the takeaways isn't to go and find modern-day prophets and kill them. Jesus has died. Jesus has died because of the sin. But that's why that's there in the Bible. That's why you hear stories of people being killed. So what does that mean for us? So I guess it's this picture still. I'm putting it in the rest of my life now. I'd never seen it before until I was preparing for this. But you type in Elijah, images, you find free Bible images, and it's full of these things. You think, wow, am I in that moment? Am I praying to God, waiting for something to happen? Am I an Israelite that's limping between the two? Am I a prophet of Baal? Am I so set on following a false god that I'm limping around after them? What am I saying to God? Where are you, God? And the message, God is there. God is there waiting for you to call on him. So we've got loads of time. There'll be some more songs. I guess it's just for you now to think about what are you saying to God? If I'm telling you God answers and hears, well, what are you going to say to him? And that could be very different for all of you. You've said a lot to God through the worship, hearts turning, um, yearning for God. So eyes turning, hearts yearning. All those songs we sing right from the start of this morning. We want to know God. We want to know more of him. And just two other quotes of when people reflect on Elijah. Elijah is a real common theme for Christians throughout the ages. So um, this guy, um, an Anglican, um, he calls himself a low Anglican, so not all smelly bells and whistles, quite a normal guy, lived on his own, lived on a council estate. He just wanted to know God and do more there with him. And J.I. Packer said, Christians in revival, and that's having new life, that French word, vie, viva, life, having new life, are accordingly found in God's presence. And there's a phrase for that, quorum Dio, attending to his word. That's why reading the Bible is very important. Attend to God's word, do what it says, feeling acute concern about sin and righteousness being good, rejoicing in the assurance of God's love and spontaneously constant in worship, tirelessly active in worship. I've mistyped it. And tirelessly active in witness and service, fueling those activities by praise and prayer. So he says, new life is all these things. Attend to the word. Is God saying something to you you need to follow? Is it about being concerned about sin? Even as Christians, we need to be acutely concerned about the sin in our lives. 
do we need to rejoice in the assurance of God's love, being spontaneously constant in worship and tirelessly active in witness and service, fueling these activities by praise and prayer? Praise and prayer is like the wood on the altar. So that's what we're burning up, prayer, prayer, praying to God, spending time with him, praising his name. And there's a prayer. This might not be a prayer for all of you, but it might be a prayer for some of you. When you prepare these, you think, gosh, I can't talk about this and not respond myself. So I'll leave these up and there'll be a few minutes while you can pray. You can pray out loud. You can pray quietly. I'll close in prayer. But for me, my prayer is this, that I want to, through grace, be reformed, recreated by repenting of my sin, saying sorry for the things I've done wrong. I'm sorry that my sin cost Jesus his life. Feasting upon God's word having my heart turned towards God. I can't make my heart face in a different direction, but God can. I can ask God to turn my heart. I want to pray and work for repentance, revival and reformation in my community. Repenting, turning around, turning your heart back to God. Revival, new life, being reformed, recreated as someone new in my community. I want to speak and obey God's truth with courage and compassion in a rebellious world. It's lovely here in church. It's lovely being surrounded by saints and people that know and love God. But when I go to work, it's not like that. It's much more like Mount Carmel. So it is a little bit. (laughs) It is different when you're away from here. But having the confidence to be like Elijah, to have courage and compassion in a rebellious world, And I want to do these things with my face towards my saviour, that's Jesus, until my chariot comes. And that's a beautiful picture. The end of the story of Elijah, or kind of, I don't know, nearly the end, he gets taken up in a whirlwind. People keep looking for Elijah to come back. Elijah gets really down and depressed in the next chapter. Um, He then gets some encouragement from someone called Elisha. He then ultimately gets taken away to heaven. And there's literally a chariot of fire. There's a chariot of fire that comes between him. And it might be that you're wanting to do these things until your chariot comes. That chariot could be Jesus returning. It could be Jesus taking you to be with him. But for me, that's my prayer. And if that's your prayer, then we'll spend the next few minutes and you can pray those things. I just ask that you will think about a God who answers, a God who is real, a God that wants to turn your heart. Dear God, I don't want to limp anymore. I don't want to be caught between a a God who is real and true and gods of the world that just cause other people to limp. Lord, I want to have the courage and compassion of Elijah to be brave in front of people, to tell them who you are. Lord, I want your strength to, to help me to turn away from sin. I know that I am so weak. I know that without you, I can't do anything good. Lord, I want people around me to to know who you are. I want to live a life that is renewed and revived. I want to be reformed. I want to be constantly turned towards you. Lord, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that someone else has paid that price. I thank you that my sin is taken by him and that I can be a new creation. I thank you, God, that you hear me. I thank you that you answer. And I just ask that for all of us this week, we'll remember you as a God who hears, a God who is real. Help us all to have our hearts turned towards you for your glory. So people around us will know that you are God. Amen.